0: All right, at this time, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I've said previously that while the Sermon on the Mount is beloved by many, and there are there are even... Unbelievers who find inspiration and and words to live by in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is principally about Jesus. It's principally about confronting us with who He is. It's not principally about tips for success in life. And if you miss who Jesus is, Whatever principles you may derive from the Sermon on the Mount, if you miss Jesus, you've missed everything. And, and I wanted to illustrate that by, by bringing up, um, th- there was a book written about 20 years ago uh, by a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. He's an unbeliever. This is not a believing book. This is not a Christian book. This is not an apologetic book about the triumph of the gospel in this guy's life. He's a Jew writing as a Jewish rabbi. But his book uh, is called "A Rabbi Talks with Jesus," and you may have heard of it, uh, Rabbi Jacob uh, Neusner, and he he wants to have a he wants to imagine a a a fictitious respectful dialogue uh, between himself, a rabbi, uh, and and Jesus, and he begins his book at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, there and he, the, the Sermon on the Mount ends and he wants to imagine this discussion that would follow. And, and Neusner acknowledges in his book that he would have responded as the crowd did, namely with astonishment. And here's what he says. Here is a Torah teacher who says in his own name what the Torah says in God's name. At Sinai, God spoke through Moses, and in the prophets we are presented with, Thus says the Lord, but on this Galilean hill, the man Jesus speaks for himself. And he's taken back. And right off the bat, he admits that it's not the teachings of Jesus that are the real issue here. It's the person of Jesus who's at the issue. And here's what he says. He says, I am troubled not so much by the message, though I do take exception to this or that, I am troubled by the messenger. Brothers and sisters, ironically, in a sense, he gets it. He gets it. This is about Jesus. The sermon on the bout is about Jesus and his authority. Who is he? to tell you how you should live your life. Who is he to say that if you don't heed his words, you are a fool who builds your life on sand? Who is he? And his book does not contain the statement, but it illustrates the, the saying made famous by C.S. Lewis and others, that when confronted with, with who Jesus is, you really only have one of three options. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Okay? And if you agree with Jesus that he's Lord, you'll understand that when you come to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you've not come to just a, an inspirational and gifted, brilliant young teacher of Torah. You have come to God Himself. And you'll agree that when Jesus says, I say to you, that there is no fundamental contradiction or difference between the voice of God that thundered from Sinai and the voice that rang and resonated in the ears of the multitude gathered on that little hill. There is no difference, brothers and sisters. Between thus saith the Lord, and so says I to you. Jesus is the Lord of the law. And that is what we come to today. So, all that intro. Now let's look at what the Lord of the law says in Matthew five seventeen to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore... the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord of the law. This is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage Lord, we ask that we would be granted humility as we consider the bold statements of Jesus here. Grant that we would respond in faithful obedience. For Christ's sake we ask this. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this passage right here, represents the thesis statement, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the passage where Jesus asserts two fundamental things. One, he asserts uh, his relationship or the relationship of his teaching to that of the antecedent Old Testament teaching. And second, he asserts the requirement of holiness in his followers. So he makes Two statements here that are going to then be fleshed out for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And we're looking at this by itself, but you need to understand that what he says here in verses 17 to 20, if you look at verse 20, he says that that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what follows in the rest of chapter 5, are six illustrations, six examples of what he means by that. And then in verse 48, the final verse of chapter 5, he comes back to what he was saying here in verse 20. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. And then so in verse 48, having provided these six illustrations of what he means, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your father, is perfect. Okay, so that's the placement of these four verses in this passage, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And this part, this passage has three basic parts. In verse 17, he advises us how not to interpret his ministry and his teaching, how not to interpret. And then in Verses 18 and 19, the second part, he affirms the law and the importance of it. And then in verse 20, he deepens the demands of righteousness for his followers. And so we're going to look at each of these three parts. And each part confronts at least one myth that is common in our world today, in in the Christian community today. Uh, first things first, in verse 17, he advises us how not to interpret his teaching. So please get that he uses very emphatic language here. When he says, do not think that I have come, that translates in one sense accurately into English, the Greek, but, but really it's... It, It's much more emphatic in force. So I think that it would be better to not just translate but to actually paraphrase to get the the thrust of what he's saying. To, To paraphrase gives you the more thrust. He says, don't think for a minute that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, he wants you to understand, he's emphatic out of the gate. Abolish from your mind the idea that I've come here to undermine, get rid of, throw out the law and the prophets. Why would he feel the need to come out of the gate after having just blessed his people and he's ready to start the body proper of his sermon? Why does he feel the need to lead out the gate with that? Well, two reasons. One... He's been teaching for a while, as we see from chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. And his fame has spread far and wide. And very early on in his ministry, in his teaching, he is contradicting and confronting the teaching of the rabbis. Now, understand that when, when, when we hear Pharisees and scribes, we're going to talk about it more in verse 20, we, we hear villains and, and, and bad guys and hypocrites and manipulators and, and just really all around nasty people. That's what we hear. In their audience, they were the pastors. They were the Bible professors. They were the missionaries. Jesus talks about their missionary endeavors. These were the guys who took the Bible seriously These were the ones trusted in their faith community to be the stewards of the Word of God. They were the ones who exposited it and taught it. And so if Jesus is so consistently contradicting them or or finding himself at odds with their teaching, then it would beg the question, is Jesus going to basically, by his teaching and ministry, throw out the Bible itself? Because that's what the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was. When, when Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, that's the summation of the Old Testament. Okay? And we oftentimes get hung up on specific commandments in the law. But realize, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, he speaks of the summation of the Old Testament, which would also include not just commands that we find onerous and we're happy, we don't have to comply with, the promises, the covenants, the expectations, the hopes. All of it goes if Jesus is abolishing it. Not just the stuff we don't like, but we still get to keep Psalm 23. If Jesus is coming to get rid of it, and he's so consistently finding himself at odds with the people we trust who are telling us what the Bible says, does Jesus reject the Bible itself? And the answer to that is an emphatic no. And that brings us up to the first myth. That has been common since the early church. Namely, that there is a fundamental juxtaposition, a fundamental uh, contradiction, or a fundamental uh, conflict even, between Jesus and the New Testament, and the Old Testament. Some even would say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. One of my seminary professors wanted us to uh, actualize out this what this looks like oftentimes. And so he asked us to, to take half a piece of paper, and on the one side, think about the Old Testament. Just think about just the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. Write down... Five to ten things about God that you think of when you think of the Old Testament. And almost everybody writes down judgmental, wrathful, vengeance, all all that kind of stuff. Okay, now write down on the right side, the next side of the page, the New Testament things. And what do you think about God from the New Testament? And mercy and love, tolerance, acceptance. Okay, in the early church, this was first really articulated by a heretic named named Marcion. And he, he wanted nothing to do with the Old Testament and Old Testament depictions. So, so he cut out actually portions even of the New Testament that weren't quite up to snuff in his mind. Stuff that was pre-Pentecost as still being Old Covenant. But it, it continues to this day. This myth that there is a conflict between Jesus and Moses. It's not... Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. And by abolish, that word is going to be later used in places like Matthew 24. That word is used of the temple, and it's translated there, destroy. So when you wonder, what does it mean to abolish the Old Testament? It means to destroy, to undermine, to get rid of. Okay, Jesus does not come to destroy the Old Testament, to undermine it. Instead, he comes to fulfill it. Now, when you hear Jesus say, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but before we get specifically, how does Jesus fulfill, understand right there, pause. When Jesus says that I come to fulfill the law and the prophets, what that means is that the law and the prophets needed fulfilled. They had built into them a a lack, an insufficiency. They weren't the end in themselves. They, They needed Jesus to be whole. To be complete, it is as it were a nice puzzle. You've spent you've spent days working on this thousand-piece puzzle. Some of you can do that in a few hours, perhaps. Others it might take you weeks. My family will do that in days. Anyway, it's like one of these puzzles, and you get the puzzle, and it's all and, people, and it's missing a piece. You know how galling that is, right? And it's just so. Ugh and you're looking everywhere for it. Jesus is the missing piece to the Old Testament. There's a me-centeredness, and only Jesus can say that, about the Old Testament. It looks to, it points to, it references, it requires Jesus to be complete. And Jesus says this, not just here, but consider John chapter 5, where he's talking to the religious leaders again. And in verse 39 and following of John chapter 5, he says this to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. There is one who will accuse you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. That's Jesus in John 5 fleshing out a little bit more about what it means for him to fulfill. Because it was pointing to, looking forward to, Moses was not writing stuff to stand on its own two feet forever. That Jesus-shaped hole in the picture of the Old Testament was needed to be filled. And Jesus comes to fill that hole up. To fill up. The lack. So Jesus does not come to abolish, to undermine, to to get rid of, to destroy the Old Testament. He comes to fill it up, to make it whole, to make the picture complete. But how does he fulfill it? Well, in a number of ways. I mean, scholars can nuance this out, and there's a list of like 30 of them. But the big three are one he fulfills the old covenant, the old covenant by doing the old covenant. He, he does the commandments of God. He does it all perfectly. He doesn't just do the commandments of God in, in the rote type of legalistic obedience that he's going to condemn the Pharisees for. He does it from the heart so that not only is his obedience perfect. But his delight, his attitude, his aspirations, his hopes, his dreams are all in accord with the law and the prophets. He perfectly fulfills the requirements of scripture. But not only does he perfectly do it himself... But in his teaching, and that's specifically what's probably at the forefront of everybody's mind here, in his teaching, he he fills up the law's meaning by referencing himself through it or in it, thereby enabling people to live out the true intent of the law. And we'll see that in just a moment. But third, he, he does, he fulfills the law by by completing the the promissory nature of the old testament the covenant of promise that is he he terminates he brings about the conclusion of the promissory aspect and inaugurates the beginning of a new redemptive historical era and so we read in john or romans 10:4 that Christ is the telos, the end, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the culmination. So Jesus comes to not destroy or undermine, but to fulfill, to make perfect. Jesus is not antinomian. He loves the word of God. And that leads us to the second point. After saying what you should not think about what he teaches, he positively affirms the law and the importance of it. One of the great myths that floats around, and it's possible that at least some here believe a form of it, But the myth number two, or the second myth, is that in the New Testament, uh, we find a a lowered standard. A loosened requirement for holiness. Back then, God expected holiness. But nowadays, you can kind of do what you want. Because, you know, we're free. No. We see in Christ's teaching here. That every jot, every tittle of the law is not only binding, but enduring. People miss that until heaven and earth pass away. Until all is accomplished. The law abides. And whoever relaxes, will be called least. And whoever does it and teaches it will be called great. Now that's a side of Jesus' teaching that we, we Christians, you know, who, who love to absolutize Paul oftentimes don't like. That Jesus does not lower the bar of holiness, R.C. Sproul used to tell a story about how he would go to these events, and this one time he went to this event and he joined this group for prayer, and, and these people were praying to their dead ancestors. And he stopped the prayer. What are you got people doing? Don't you know that God forbids this? That's old testament. We can, we can do it now because we're free. And R.C. Sproul's response was, Are you, do you mean to tell me that you believe that a practice that in the Old Testament warranted the death penalty that God is now okay with? One of the fundamental mistakes that Christians make is that we think that the Old Testament is basically set aside... And the only parts of the Old Testament that you need to keep are the relatively few parts that are repeated in the New Testament. So you're not really worrying about the Old Testament after all. It's just incidental that they happen to be found in the Old Testament. Really, the only thing you're worrying about is their New Testament citations. And that is absolutely bass-ackward from how it should go. According to Jesus, the law abides. And unless you see it changed, altered, canceled, mitigated in some way in a new covenantal form in the new covenant, then you should assume that it remains in force. And there's plenty that has changed because Jesus has Brought in a new covenant in his blood. So for example, the religious cultic practices of worship have fundamentally changed. We no longer sacrifice bulls and goats and such. But we still come through the blood of Jesus. The requirement of holiness is never, ever Cancelled in the New Testament. And the Old Testament remains a crystal, clear picture of the kind of distinction and character that should mark the people of God. Which is why then in verse 20, the third point, Jesus deepens. He doesn't just reinforce. He deepens the requirement and the demands of righteousness. He says. That your righteousness must exceed. That of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again. We think that's easy peasy. The righteousness of the Pharisees was, was wickedness. They were bad, bad, bad. They're murderers at heart. Well. That would have been demoralizing to the first audience of Jesus' words here. Because, again, they were the heroes. And understand that what Jesus is saying, he, he, he's not simply saying, okay, you look at the Pharisees here. They, they keep, eh, I don't know, let's say they keep 80% of the law. You all need to keep at least 81%. Then your righteousness will exceed, you know, that is not what Jesus says. In fact, to, to underscore that, he gives all the examples that he's going to give in the rest of the chapter. We get to the point in verse 48 where we get the, the punchline of what Jesus means by that. You must be perfect. So we see that the righteousness that Jesus says we must have is not just greater in degree. If they have 80, I'm about to get 81. No, it's, it's a different righteousness in kind, because the righteousness that comes by the law is the righteousness that is only skin deep, because law can only police actions, law cannot police the thoughts. And intentions of the heart. I've shared this story before. I like sharing it because as I've grown older, it's just so comically ridiculous. But I assure you it was not ridiculous in the moment. The army requires they give us three meals a day. When I was a young enlisted man, we had a very busy day. We ate nothing, nothing. And that at 2330 hours, that's 1130 p.m., they brought out our three MREs. Here's your three meals for the day. They, they followed the rules. Three meals a day. But we all know that that's a pretty cynical uh, but the laws of the law, and we could apply that across a whole host of issues. You see, all the law can say is, as he's, to use an example, he's going to use is, "Do not murder." I haven't killed nobody, so I've kept the law. Check. That's what the Pharisees would say. But Jesus wants you to understand that the righteousness God requires is perfection. And so it's not enough to not simply not kill somebody. You, you can't even harbor the grudge in your heart. You, you, you can't say, you fool. You, you can't even let anger take up residence. That's that's the law. Can't be policed by people like that. But what Jesus is saying is that the law of God really, truly requires perfection. And that's the righteousness you've got to have to inherit the kingdom. And of course, if the Pharisees can't do that, what hope is there for you and I? And that is, of course, the reason why we must run to Him, which is what He says in John 5. That they don't come to him for life. We must go to him for life. Because as Lord of the law, he doesn't just give it, he keeps it. And in keeping it, he then is enabled to give us not just the commandments, but he's enabled to give us then what he requires itself. Namely, his righteousness. So brothers and sisters, this passage is all about who Jesus is. He's the Lord of the law. He affirms and upholds it. There's a requirement for God's people to be holy. But understand that that requirement deep down is one of perfection pristine, moral, attitudinal, inclinational perfection. And at that, we should throw our hands up, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. Which is why this comes on the heels of the Beatitudes, where there's the people who are poor in spirit, they, they recognize their lack they mourn. They, 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 they are sorry for their sins. But they look out in faith to be filled with the righteousness that God requires. Because Jesus, our Lord, freely supplies. So Jesus is not only the perfect lawgiver; He's the perfect law keeper. He is, brothers and sisters, the begin and the end of the law. For all who believe, do you? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you, Jesus, for orienting us rightly. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant faithful hearts that we would turn to you in repentance, that we would cling to you in faith, that we would walk in obedience, that we would honor your word, that we would celebrate the distinctive holiness that you have called us to as your people, as we are in fact salt and light in this world. Grant that we would hear your voice, obey your voice, And run to your voice. In the name of Christ our Lord we ask this. Amen.